sometime back we looked at some of these um, recordings in Acts, some of the things went on with Saul who was converted and became Paul, and if you read along there you see that Barnabas, along with Paul, was teaching, we talked about this not too long ago, teaching believers for an entire year, um, discipling them there in a house, and then at the first part of this chapter we didn't read, but Paul and Barnabas are teaching one named Sergius Paulus, guy tries to intervene there and an evil guy tries to get them off course and um, the spirit through Paul blinds this man and sends him on his way and then this Sergius Paulus is converted. But here in verses 13 through 41 is a pretty unique look because we've seen a lot of Paul we're telling, we're being told he is teaching. We found out right shortly after his conversion he was preaching in the synagogues and people were astounded by his teaching. But here in these verses we actually have the first recorded sermon of Paul. So we get to see the content of what he's saying and not just be told that he's preaching. And we get to look and hear more than just a summation, but we get to see sort of what a sermon from Paul would have looked like. And um, perhaps the most significant thing about it is that he's doing exactly what Peter was doing, what Stephen was doing back in chapter 7. He's simply preaching the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And just as Peter and Stephen and the apostles and even Jesus himself had done and was doing, so Paul in the gospel confronts man at the point of his sin and demands a response. That's what the gospel does. The gospel never has been nor ever will be neutral or non-offensive. Now, people may respond differently to it. Some simply reject it. Some angrily reject it and even fight against it. But the good news is often many also cry out to God for repentance and forgiveness and are accepted by God. In fact, they cry out not like we are told to accept God, but they cry out that they be accepted by God. I think that's a maybe a mistake we've made over the years in our preaching. <clears throat> we fail to teach men that the gospel is a command, not a pleading from God to please trust me. It's a command that you better repent and be accepted by God and believe. In fact, that's what Peter said, remember, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He preached and then the people cried out, what should we do? And be saved and Peter said repent so we see there um, the glorious response to the gospel hey we, want, we don't want to be crushed under this God whose son we helped crucify what do we do to be saved and so Peter said repent and so many did and believed and were saved by God at the end of chapter 7 Stephen preached the same gospels the same gospel and his hearers cried out, but this time they didn't cry out, what must we do to be saved? They cried out and stopped up their ears and ran at Peter and took up stones and killed him. So it's interesting as you read through the scripture, you can see 
the various responses to the gospel, but the gospel is the same. It's never neutral. It always confronts men at the point of their greatest need and demands a response. And even today, it does the same thing. The nature of the gospel is offensive to the nature of man. Jesus said, in fact, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and to know him is to have peace and to know peace. But his point was not that he came to set in place or to set in advance a military installation of some sort with a sword, but that he is like a sword in that it cuts, it divides. Much like the Hebrews writer says, the double-edged sword cuts even between joint and marrow. The gospel of Jesus Christ cuts and divides even between families and people and nations because some respond in faith and others respond in anger or ignore it. So Jesus said, that's what the gospel will do. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said the true gospel either offends men or charms them. And it still does that. And this is true of our text today. Paul's preaching of the gospel brings about varied responses many believed in this passage and were glad and rejoiced while some were filled with envy and opposed the things spoken of by Paul but let's look at what he spoke I think it's important to see if our preaching is going to be Christ centered and be Bible centered then our preaching ought to emulate what we read preaching to be like in the Bible First off, Paul does just as Stephen did and really as Jesus did when he preached. He pointed out the fact that Jesus is the culmination of history. Everything God has been doing is bringing history to the point of exactly what God wants history to be about. And the answer is Jesus. Peter and Stephen both also recounted the history of Israel. Go back and read. Stephen's, in fact, is a very long part of Acts chapter 7, but his sermon is recorded there. It's very long, and he goes all the way, just like Paul does here, back to into history, to Abraham, and to the uh, captivity, and to the desert wanderings, and the giving of the law, and everything. And he points out, as Paul does here, hey, this was going somewhere. It was pointing to Christ. He starts with Abraham. The God of this people chose our fathers. As God chose Abraham and his descendants as his special people. But I think it's important to always be reminded God did choose Israel, but it had nothing to do with Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we are told, For you are a holy people to the Lord our God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But he chose you because he loves you. And man, that's just a great gospel message right there. You can't earn God's favor. You can't do anything to make God love you and save you. God saves you because he loves you. And if he loves you, he'll save you. 
And so if you hear this message and you realize that Jesus died for you, this gospel and this God is for you and he will save you. So turn from your sin to him. Repent as he gives you repentance and sorrow for your sin and be saved. That's the message of the gospel. So Paul begins this gospel presentation with a reminder as so many messages are all really preaching in the New Testament does that God is sovereign not only over history but specifically he is sovereign over the history of the Israelites. God didn't choose these fathers. I mean, not only did God choose them, but he exalted them, even in Egypt. Powerfully brought them out. Cared for them. The ESV says he put up with them, which I think is a funny way to imagine it because that is what he did. He put up with them. But it literally means he cared for them. He carried them through the wilderness until the time was right for them to cross the Jordan. He even destroyed their enemies. He gave them judges. He gave them kings. He took their king. He gave them a new king who was David. And then from David's seed came the Savior of Israel. The Savior of Israel who is Jesus. And so I love what Paul does here. He takes all that history and sums it up as fast as he can to get to Jesus. Hey, the point of everything is to get to Christ. Like Spurgeon always said, take every sermon from the Bible and make a beeline to the cross because it all has to do, it all culminates there. I'm hoping soon that um, when we get back into town to start, uh, we're going to start trying to preach some messages about the atonement itself. It's the greatest fact of history. I mean, it is what separates Christianity from everything else. The reason that we don't have a works-oriented salvation, the reason that we don't believe that we can do anything to make God love us is because everything that needed to be done was done in Jesus Christ. No other religion has an atoning work for salvation other than men's atoning work, which is not going to atone for sin. So Jesus, in his atoning work, sets Christianity apart from everything else. God reconciling man to himself by himself becoming man so that he could take away the sins of men. It's an amazing thought. So Paul starts here with history to point out that God is sovereign and he was sovereign in all of Israel's doings and he was sovereign in bringing this Jesus at the time he did. And so Paul starts there. God chose this people. But God chose everything else. He chose to bring them out when he did. To destroy the nations. Distribute the land. Gave judges, kings. Took their kings. Gave more kings until finally he gave them Christ. If Paul's sermon was in outline form, maybe the point number one would have been God did it. Because that's what he's saying here. God did everything. The apostles hammered this fact and Jesus did and so should we. History is going somewhere. It's going right where God wants it to go. And we can have complete confidence that God's plan for mankind and for this world has never skipped a beat. In fact, it never will. It will do and go exactly how God wants it to. And there's nothing that can set that off course. 
the plans of God will prevail and succeed. That's why Jesus is, could so confidently say the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the reason God makes prophecies and they come to pass is because he is the future and he makes the decrees that come to pass. But all that God has done for Israel is what he has done for all of his people. This is how the plan to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham and Israel has come about. This is the sure mercies of David. Quoted here from Isaiah 55, the everlasting covenant. And you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He did everything just perfectly as planned in the fullness of time or at the right time he brought Jesus into this world, into humanity. The incarnation, the word of God became flesh dwelt among us. All of this happened just at the right time. And also, Jesus was betrayed according to God's plan. He was mocked and tried and crucified. All those things happened perfectly according to God's plan. And everything will, including this, the appointment unto man wants to die in judgment. So I trust you're ready to meet God. All of history culminates into Jesus. He, he will either be honored among the praise of his people or he will be honored amidst the crushing of his enemies. But he will be honored and he will be revered and every tongue will testify and glorify him and every knee will bow before him. But this point of Christ's coming gets Paul to this point in his sermon that Jesus is the justifier of sinners. Two important aspects of the gospel, justification and forgiveness. Forgiveness is a marvelous thing and we all need it. We were conceived in sin, brought forth in sin. The wicked go astray from the womb. All these things the Bible tells us, through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, and spread to all men because all have sinned. And through one man's offense, judgment has come to all men, resulting in condemnation. We need forgiveness to cleanse us, but we also need justifying to make us righteous. Forgiveness is great, but it's not enough. Cleansing is great. Taking away the filth, the judgment against us, but we need righteousness. And so Paul says here, by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now the ESV says set free. And I guess I can see the point there, but I, I hate to lose that language. I think it's too important. Everyone who cannot be justified by the law of Moses is justified by Christ. The law is good and perfect and able to convert the soul, but only this, the law knows two things, perfection and condemnation. You either keep the entire law or you're condemned by it. And here's the truth, we're all condemned by it because we can't keep it. Only Jesus is perfect and only Jesus had perfect obedience to the law. So Paul will say later in one of his letters to Galatians in chapter 2, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in, we who have believed in Christ Jesus 
that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And this word justified means to render righteous or declare righteous. And that's only done through Christ. So please understand, there will never be a time in your life when you get ready or get well or get made good enough to be saved. That's why Jesus came. God sent him so that you can be saved because you can only be justified by his work. We are told that Abraham believed God and God counted to him his righteousness or reckoned it toward him. We don't earn it, God gives it. There's another beautiful place that Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation satisfaction by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance God had in his forbearance God had passed over the sins previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus now you've become a slave to this righteousness you are servant to righteousness you've been set free from sin and made a slave to righteousness but it's not your own. Isn't that a marvelous thing? The Bible declares us either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. As a slave to righteousness, you belong to God. You'll desire the things of God. You'll desire and hunger and thirst for righteousness, not because something's good in you, but because of Christ who is in you. He will cause you to thirst and hunger for right living. So Jesus is to justify our sinners in that he gives us forgiveness and his righteousness. There's a song that we sing, an old song. I'm not sure if it's in our book, but it needs to be. If it's not, maybe it is. Top Lady, one of the great theologians of the past, wrote this song. Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The idea of being justified and cleansed. It's a marvelous thing, folks. I know that if you're in Christ, you've, you've experienced it. You know what it's like to recognize, even if it's just a glimpse for a moment, what it means to be forgiven and, and made clean. And yeah, we'll sin pretty quickly thereafter. But the great and wonderful thing about our God is that He ever lives to make intercession. So we get to go back. No matter how much we sin. Now, we can't be like some suggest, and as Paul even encountered, and just keep on sinning. That grace might be abounding. No, God forbid. The Spirit will not allow that. And thankfully he won't, right? When we're broken because of our sin, what a gift of God. What a gift is the Holy Spirit of conviction. Man, sometimes I'm just so thankful when I see people.
people so broken, so messed up in this world that God has arrested me from that and doesn't allow me to go that far. He has saved from wrath and made me pure. But in verse 41, he says, well, verse 40, he's, he's talking to these religious people. Remember, he's in the synagogue here, and they said, hey, brothers, y'all have a good word from us? And probably kind of like we were talking about Sunday school this morning, a lot of these religious leaders would have been expecting, hey, tell us something good we've done and talk about how good we are and how bad everybody else is. And then Paul goes off on this. Hey, Jesus sent his son and y'all killed him. And he said, you better beware lest what the prophets said, and I think this is in Habakkuk, they come about, look you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if somebody tells it to you. He's saying, hey, it's being told to you. You better believe it. Because so many it was being told to and they didn't believe it. So many still today it's being told to and they don't believe and they can't believe it. But you better heed it and hear it. Because all the promises of God come together in Christ. And to reject Christ is to reject God. To reject the promises of God. To reject the salvation of God. And to reject God's Christ is to fall under the mighty hand of judgment. And as the writer to the Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We won't. The great love and mercy and grace of God displayed in Christ does not cancel out his wrath and just judgment that will come. Christ said, after I go away, the Father will send the Holy Spirit and he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he's doing that now, even today. There will come a day when that's not happening anymore. There will come a time when Christ returns. Though that may be way out in the future, it will come. And we have to preach the gospel as if today's the last day to preach it. And live as if today's the last day to live it. And in doing so, we do not dare, as so many are doing, try to take away the offense of the gospel. If you take away the offense of the gospel, you're taking away the gospel. Because what you're doing, in order to take away the offense, you've got to add something to it that's not there. You've got to add some way that, uh, that man is good, that Jesus died because you are worthy. No, he died because you're unworthy. But his righteousness will make you worthy in God's sight. We have to add things to make the gospel unoffensive. And it no longer will be the gospel. And it's the offense of the gospel that brings men to repentance. Some of you know what it was like. You were angry when you finally realized and understood the gospel. Because it confronted you. And it made you angry because you realized that nothing you could do would make you right with God. And that makes men mad. Because... Doggone it, if I do something good and right, it ought to be recognizing of all creation, of all creatures, God should acknowledge my goodness and take me based on that because I'm better than most of the people around me. But the gospel will say, no, you're not. You're no better than Saul who persecuted and murdered Christians because he thought he was religious and doing right and he thought he was doing God a favor, but he wasn't. Well, he was. He was doing right what God put him there to do. Because he was on his way. He was on the road to salvation, though he didn't realize it. 
But that's the offense of the gospel. It comes to us and confronts us and demands that no matter how nice and good we think we are, we repent of our sin and be saved or else we'll perish just alongside alongside everyone that we thought was so evil and wicked more than us. And the truth is there is only saved and unsaved. <clears throat> we put degree on sin. Sin has different consequences. I get that. But when it comes to the gospel, there's only loss and saved. See here, Paul is in the synagogue to religious people. So you might say, well, why are you preaching this in the church? Well, Paul is here with the religious people trying to make them see, here's the gospel. Don't be, don't fail to believe it even though somebody's telling it to you. Don't be fooled by your own goodness because it's filthy rags. Apart from Christ, you're condemned. But by the tender mercies of God, he has made a way of escape. What a beautiful message. That's the preaching of the apostles. Man, ours shouldn't be any different. If it is, I would, I would have to ask, what are we preaching? Who are we following? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I ask that it has gone forth to accomplish exactly what you sent it to do. You promised that it will, so we trust that it is. Lord, we know that even in gatherings like this, there are those who are not yet converted to the gospel, so we want them to hear it and be cut in their heart that they might turn to you and repent. And God, that you would give them grace and salvation and justification before you and mercy. Lord, that you would show them what it means to be cleansed and forgiven. Lord, we trust you to do that. And for those of us who you've already done that for, may we continue to be encouraged by this good news. That even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that we've been reconciled to God through him, not based on our own works and good deeds. Because as far as salvation goes, they would only be filthy rags. But that which Christ has given, which we will celebrate now in the supper, oh, it's so perfect. It's so satisfied, the wrath of the Father. And we acknowledge that today, and we rejoice in it. In Jesus we pray. Amen.